Welcome back to Deep Focus. My name is Quaid, and I'm here with your co-host, Nick. How you doing today, man? I'm very good, thanks. Um, just got over a little bit of a uh, sickness. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm feeling a lot better now, so. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, in between all the, the sickness, uh, we have managed to watch Snowpiercer by Bong Joon-ho. And that is what is going to be the subject of today's episode. Um, there's some interesting things about this film. You know, it came out, what was it, 2014, 2013? I think it was 13. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and there was a lot of rumors swirling about this film. And there's sort of like some false legends that even I had until just like a week ago <laughs> about this film. Uh, one of the main ones is that there's like... Uh, there's like an american cut and then there's the director's cut that was like released in korea yeah i heard that Uh, too yeah exactly i i thought this Mm. was absolutely true and apparently there was just a lot of drama between bong joon ho and harvey weinstein who was the financer on this film Mm. uh, the big financer at the very least uh and weinstein had created his own separate american cut and had shown it to American filmmakers he respected, and then also showed uh, Bong Joon-ho's cut. The major difference between them was about 30 minutes were cut out in Weinstein's version, mm-hmm. and they chose Bong Joon-ho's. So ultimately, Bong Joon-ho did get to release his film. Um, That's good. But the interesting thing about it is the compromise is Weinstein thought it wasn't going to make any money at all. So they did it video on demand. This was back in 2013. Think about that. Mm. This is mm. one of those initial movies that got released primarily on video on demand VOD and like a few art house theaters in the major cities, but it did so well uh, that they were able to expand its release into actual, you know, suburban theaters. So mm-hmm. cineplexes. Uh, so this is definitely one of those movies that sort of, uh, I guess, was a leading example for how VOD could be used, video on demand and releasing films. Um, but I say all that to say there's one version. There's only one Snowpiercer. There's actually no secret director's cut or anything like that. Uh, so you can watch it and know you're watching the actual vision. Yeah, I, I did hear about the uh, drama between the two. Um, but yeah, I, I was also under the impression that there was a director's cut, but yeah, there was this weird thing. Bong Joon-ho has apparently done like a lot of interviews about it when he was talking, I was reading about this, about, it, uh, one of his conversations with Weinstein and there's this scene. I want to talk to you about it when we get to it in the film, but where like these, you know, villainous soldiers, uh, like they cut open a fish and then they throw mm-hmm. it. Right before yeah. they all start fighting. Yeah. And there's a scene where and Bong Joon-ho was like, Weinstein really wanted me to cut it out. So I made up this story about my father being a fisherman and all this. <laughs> and he bought it hook, line, and sinker. So I got to keep it. And <laughs> so I was just, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, just the things yeah, you got to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, no. Um. Yeah. So I guess the truth is uh, there's no director's cut, but there is a producer's cut somewhere out there that never got released. Um, Exactly. I mean, I'm not really interested in seeing it, but, (laughs) you know, yeah. um, usually I I feel like producers don't when when money is their concern. You know, they don't tend to make good uh, 
good cuts of stuff you know and yeah. we see that all the time in film and just like big blockbuster releases where um you see the theatrical cut which is technically the producer's cut right and mm-hmm. it's just you, it's just missing so much and you can tell and you know it's just to like we've said a hundred times before just to get as many butts in seats uh throughout the day as possible yeah you know um and there's that's that's the extent of the uh i guess like decision making uh like incentive you know uh so yeah it, it's not really conducive to making a uh good film in my opinion and and like not to say that it never does you know sometimes uh, yeah, i guess I if you shoot from the hip enough times you know you'll hit the bullseye once but mm-hmm. like yeah no it's it's just in general i'd say that a producer's cut um is not nearly as good yeah it's it's just such a hard thing to do you know just imagine not having attempted to unify all the different elements of the filmmaking in the actual filmmaking process and you know post hoc uh trying to you know cobble together something out of the pieces it's um it's a tough task you know Mm. um but yeah so you know weinstein was uh legendary for that you know he had uh nicknames i believe surrounding uh his proclivity to cut up uh filmmakers films if you thought they weren't that great Mm. uh but it's, you know, what, what are you supposed to do, you know, with a film like this, with Bong Joon-ho? Like, what do you expect, honestly? I don't, I don't get the, uh, the thought process that goes into it. Yeah, uh, I mean. Making a, a fucking movie based off of a French graphic novel. Right. You know, so, and, you know, it's not like you paid some, you know, script doctor to write that's that's written like a bajillion blockbusters, you know what I mean? (laughs) To Mm -hmm. write this up and you've given it to the gun for hire, uh, director who does all that kind of stuff. You chose Bong Joon-ho, uh, (laughs) and this is what you get. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great film. It is. Uh, I loved it the first time I, I saw it. Um, I, I actually had a couple arguments about it. Um, some people were trying to tell me that it was a bad movie, but hmm. um, yeah. Had well, it's interesting as well. <laughs> to the nail. What? Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that this was like uh, Bong Joon-ho, you know, he's a big name now because of Parasite, but this was his first mm-hmm. foray uh, mm-hmm. into really Western uh audiences. audiences yeah yeah it's not if you were a cinephile yeah you could have heard of the host and mother and memories sure yeah like um i i actually saw the host before this one um, yeah but, but yeah, mainstream no. american audiences watched this they actually went to the theater and they watched this because mm-hmm. you know it was an interesting concept it was done well so word spread and it's got you know chris evans in it you know captain america so yep. they went and watched this uh, and now, of course, Bong Joon-ho has done Okja and Parasite, mm-hmm. uh, which have been, you know, both of those, all three of his previous films have been huge in America. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think he's a just interesting figure in general, um, because I guess I guess kind of the way that I. Um, how should I say this? Like one of one of the major uh 
issues I've had kind of because I, I was raised uh, Japanese, right? And I didn't speak English till I was five. Right. Um, and like I grew up in California, but uh, like, you know, in like a Japanese community, you know, um right. so like i was always kind of exposed to eastern film and so like i kind of grew up with it so i, I guess i never really saw it as like um different you know it, of course it is very different but like you know uh i never saw it as something that was like foreign you know okay um but kind of growing up and talking to a lot of these uh just uh you know film lovers in america like it, it kind of started to become apparent that like eastern film was kind of you know looked as an other you know something that like you don't really include in cinema um mm. and that i mean i i've never had this kind of issue with you know people like you you know that kind of come in and like accept everything as cinema you know but mm -hmm. like there there is kind of like the stigma where like an entire half of the world's cinema is kind of just forgotten you know and i actually um like of of that though you know you have some breakthrough stuff like i would say like japanese animation uh really broke through with uh miyazaki right yeah. um and then obviously uh china had its heyday um in the mid 90s uh mid to late 90s i guess uh with its mm -hmm. cinema, uh, cinema movement um but i actually thought uh but like I, I mean we talked about this a little earlier but uh it seems like there's this there's this sense that only really cinephiles watch Eastern film. And it is kind of this like, you know, <laughs> like exotic experience almost. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because, uh, like you said, B Bong Joon-ho kind of has uh, broken out into uh, Western audiences, yeah. you know, with Snowpiercer, Okja. And now, um, like, I, I can't. I really can't believe that a movie like Parasite uh, was so popular here, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and personally, like, I thought, like, if any, if any um, kind of like, uh, like, I don't know, th these like Central Asian countries would have a um, kind of like breakout director, they would have been from China or Japan because their cinema cinema scenes are already very established yeah you know but um i don't know i think something happened in uh uh in their cinema in in general i mean this isn't obviously we have plenty of films that aren't this way but like in general um when you see live action especially mainstream live action stuff come out of like let's say japan right um it's almost become uh very uh what's the word uh it almost imitates uh animation yeah right um yeah, it, it becomes the exaggerated quality right right which like you know that that exaggerated quality is in animation and works in animation but like um that animation like originally like uh was a rendition of you know live action stuff that they had seen Mm. right like when you look at um when you look at like late 80s early 90s um japanese cinema you see a lot of like uh um a lot of inspiration taken from like kurosawa right yeah and when you see when when you see kind of like present day japanese live action cinema it's it's almost like 
the inspiration is taken from animated films, Mm -hmm. you know? So you get this weird kind of like telephone distortion effect where it's like you have this, um, you have this animated piece that's based on, you know, real life and live action and like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then it gets turned into animation and then that animation becomes the, uh, the inspiration for a live action film. And then you get this, it, it, it feels very strange and almost like you're watching a cartoon. Yeah. You know? Um, and obviously, you know, one, one of the most famous things to come out of Korea um, is just K dramas, right? like, there's a lot of people in the United States even that watch those. And they've always been very similar to um, like a, you know, Spanish soap operas. Yeah, uh, not not like from the country, but Spanish speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you you get the same kind of uh, feel, kind of kind of like a also a, just English soap operas too. But you get this kind of like sixty frames per second, yeah, you know, yeah. very standard shot uh, kind of thing. You know, just overly dramatized stuff, and yeah. like, um, I don't know. It's it's really interesting to see even the effect that a filmmaker like Bong Joon-ho has on uh cinema that's coming out of out of Korea. Yeah, right? it seems as if Korea is uh, beginning to go through their little uh like a, a period of time here that may be referred to in the future as like their, you know, their cinematic golden age or something. You yeah. know, cuz you know, uh you talked about Japanese here they clearly had that. I mean, the era of Kurosawa, you know, those, mm. those few decades and, and later like an too, like into, into the nineties as well. Cause you had like Miyazaki after that. Um, yeah. Um, oh, shoot. but in terms of like live action film, uh, you know what I mean? Like they had the Kurosawa's and they had the, the they had this whole infrastructure of Japanese film studios that were, pumping out these great incredible films that you know like you know almost all of them you could buy on like criterion.com you know what i mean like right 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 um they're sort of revered yeah and it seems as if that's where we're that's where we're getting to with korea there's a possibility of that because those films those films like kurosawa films in their day of being released they were films that actually did come to the west and connect with mainstream audiences in the West, you know, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Because um, you have that, like, you have like, so this like is Takeshi a Kitano in like the nineties. Right. Yeah. Who's like, you know, no, he's, he's kind of that, he's like a comedian that also uh, wrote and directed like a lot of these like gangster films and yeah. like, he's, he's awesome. And like, I, I definitely recommend him to, uh, to watch for anyone, but like, uh, when like that's something that again only like cinephiles pulled out of japan you know not everyone has seen like katana yeah. films right um but uh yeah like you said kurosawa is kind of this like widely known uh name you know yeah. and i think bong joon ho is going to be that for korea as well yeah exactly yeah um it, it would be cool if you know this started a whole movement in the only other Korean film like uh well that's what I mean like I think it, I yeah. think it's we're beginning to see a certain you know we we talked about this briefly but a certain almost realism you could say that's more palatable mm-hmm. to uh, a western audience in yeah. this Korean film uh the only other Korean film that I've ever watched that I don't that 
two, I guess there's two. The Bong Joon-ho didn't make was the sequel to the like train at Busan or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. the zombie yeah, flick. Yeah. And then Old Boy, which was done by, I forget his name, it's like Park something. Um, mm. You know, and... And, you know, because the old boy was considered a classic and that one did make it to Western cinephiles and it had a Western remake, you know, uh, with, yeah, uh, uh, Park Chan-wook. Spike Lee. Yeah, Park Chan-wook. Exactly. He's like the only other name, but he never broke through with mainstream American audiences. He was sort no, of like yeah. the guy who represented Korea to Western cinephiles. Right, um, right. Like when I, when I say when I say like. You know, have you seen Old Boy? A lot of people <laughs> say, "What? <laughs> What's that?" Yeah, exactly. You know, um, you whereas, mean the one like, with Josh say, <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Um, but when you say like Okja, Snowpiercer, Parasite, people know what those are. You know, like mainstream yeah. Western audiences uh, have seen those. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because of. I, I wonder if um, like kind of streaming and accessibility has anything to do with it. Um. That's just an, another explanation for why uh, this might be happening. But I think I think you're on to something with this whole idea that like um, his his style does have this like distinct realism to it, you yeah. know, which is which is very much in the vein of uh, Western uh, film, especially uh, in the United States. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd argue that he does it better than a lot of the directors here. Yeah. Um, which. That, that that's kind of what i would think is would be interesting kind of get, go into the future and see if like you know korea also adopts this kind of like realist uh realism that um the u.s kind of has been known for yeah um well and, it's also oh, interesting. i should also explain oh, we, we talked about this before but when we say realism we're not talking about like Oh, superheroes yeah. aren't realistic, but more so, you know, yeah. um, Italian neorealism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of the no, human condition, like of of the rules of our universe, not necessarily, you know, um, yeah. of our universe, but like let's say that a monster was to exist in the water, you know, <laughs> like yeah. would it act um, in a way that's realistic, you know, like that's yeah. as if as if it existed within our rea- reality, and I think. Um, like when you look at things like Snowpiercer and Okja that clearly have this fantastical element, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but are clearly so um, so uh, kind of tied into the human condition. Like that's very very. Um, um, you, you can almost relate to it better than an like an unrealistic drama, right? That ha- that takes place in our world. Where, you know, you take something like, for example, Grey's Anatomy, right? <laughs> yeah. Where it's it has this very soap opera you feel. Um, and like um, a lot of the stuff that happens happens to serve some purpose so the writers can put a character through a situation, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and like some of the things that happen are, you know, uh, close to kind of being absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, it's still of our world. So that, that would be like, I would consider kind of like an unrealistic take. I think uh, right. a lot of it also really has to do with uh, the direction of the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really how he, you know, their performances and how he's helping them with their performances. 
because that big element of what we're talking about, which isn't this, you know, we're not talking about realism as you've explained as some sort of like school of filmmaking, like Italian neorealism or something, but more Mm -hmm. just in practical terms. And, you know, and essentially we're also saying we're negating what we said earlier, which is like, he does not have this exaggerated. uh, Right, right. Style, which you see a lot in the acting. Like I've watched some, you know, Japanese uh, genre films recently. I think one was called something like, uh, like kill your friends or something. It was actually Mm -hmm. really good, but Mm -hmm. I exactly what we were talking about. Very exaggerated. There's a quasi anime element to its whole. Yeah. So, and it's not, and he's also, as you pointed out, there's soap operas and we all know English language, Spanish language, Korean language, you know, how yep. those are and they're not you know practically speaking realistic he right. is a realistic right. filmmaker so right right uh, like um snowpiercer i would say is an extremely realistic film right like it's it yeah um it follows kind of the story of this like violent revolution and also before we start spoilers uh we don't <laughs> we just let those fly here so if you haven't yeah. seen it go watch it but um, yeah. um, yeah, with Snowpiercer, you know, it's about this like kind of uh, violent, violent revolution where the where the classes are literally segmented by and, and represented by train cars. Yeah. Right. Um, from the back to the front. And um, like if this was I, I think the way that you can you can uh, really garner whether a film is realistic or not is like. Essentially, if you took uh, this element that's used kind of as a metaphor and removed it, right, um, and essentially set it in, let's say, like, you know, some country, right, mm-hmm. would the story, like, and if the story played out in the same way, would it still make sense? And if, if you're like, you know, yes, it does, right, um, yeah. then I would say it's fairly realistic, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think personally, like I, I, I enjoy a uh, more realistic film more. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. And uh, not to say that I, I'm, I don't like exaggerated filmmaking. Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. I do think that it tends to work a little better when it, um, it's animated. Um, yeah. Just because the, the like stylistically, it, it also is removed from, you know, uh, yeah, from an actual human face. Right, right. So, yeah. like, it it, it it does have this um, almost like unity in how it's removed, right? Mm-hmm. But for something like Snowpiercer, right? Um, I I just I just love this idea that you can you can kind of like remove it and it's still an amazing story. Which is on a separate note, the reason why I think Spider Man works so well as a superhero movie, right? Because right. if you took that story and you made it about like you know some kid that was just brilliant. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It would be definitely be m- more like mundane. Right. Uh, not in a bad way, but just in an objective way. Right. But mm-hmm. um, it would still be a great story. Like if you took the Spider-Man story and made it about this brilliant kid who wanted to be a cop or something or a detective. Right. Like that would still be an amazing story. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um. And I think when um, great filmmakers come in and they talk about um, these subjects in a science fiction way, right? 
Um, it's the science fiction usually serves uh, some purpose, and we've talked about this before as well. But uh, yeah. essentially, um, the science fiction can be used, or the fantasy, right? Either can be used to kind of skip steps, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You can say kind of like assuming this, then we can like get on to more intense topics, right? Um, exactly, yeah. So when we talked about the Blade Runner episode, we we're talking about how you know having a synthetic human, um, like a, a human that was not born naturally right um is the perfect jumping point for talking about like the soul or what it means to be human right Mm -hmm. um and i think that like when you look at this train as a metaphor for society which like um it obviously is and i think it's silly not to think it is if it absolutely is yeah (laughs) I, i don't know who who would come in this uh and say that it's not unless they're being silly Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take this train and you think about it as a metaphor for, you know, society, then you start thinking, okay, well that, um, like it, it kind of cleans up that side of it. You know, it's not as, it's not as, uh, uh, messy and chaotic. So you can really get to, um, what this film is talking about, which I think is kind of like the end of a society. Right. Yeah. It, it, um, it, the sci-fi elements, uh, when a great filmmaker is using them, it allows them to be, uh, you know, illustrative and it, al- it saves them a lot of time. Whereas you were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, it, is it realistic? Well, imagine if we took all these fantastic elements away, are people acting essentially how they would anyways? Ex- yeah. Right. But yeah. one of the problems is if you were to also film that it would, you know, there'd be a lot <laughs> more groundwork. Yeah. There'd be like more exposition. Yeah, totally. And also you wouldn't have some of that magic, some of those, like those perfect, almost, you know, symbolism and uh, interesting qualities to it. So, well, and I also it's think it's that very like, cool that, you know, civilization society is represented by, by a train, train yeah. that's going around in circles, <laughs> you know, right, uh, right around the world. Yeah. So, um, I also think that like uh, that sci-fi and fantasy um, and, and I, I want to say this beforehand. I am a little biased. This is what I write in basically exclusively. Yeah. I think I've written maybe one or two things that are not sci-fi or fantasy. But okay. I, th- I think one of one of the best parts about sci-fi and fantasy that we actually I don't think we've even covered yet um, is just that. Um, it re- removes the audience from the subject at hand, right? And like allows everyone to kind of look at it as an outsider, you know, yeah. which gives them a more objective view of what you're trying to talk about, right? So like the problem with the problem with talking about any real world event is that people immediately have their own um, relationship with it, right? Mm-hmm. And when you start talking about it, um, they they often just have a preconceived notion beforehand, right? Um, like if if for example you took Star Wars and removed the uh, <laughs> you know removed the sci-fi element or the fantasy element, I would say, um, and it was just about a bunch of terrorists who were like bombing a weapons facility, right? Yeah, people would have a very different take on it because people already have a different um like a uh, relationship with that kind of activity. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um so making a science fiction or fantasy film like has that dual effect of both changing um uh sorry, both both uh 
letting people be objective and also letting you, um, like you said, speed through things that are kind of unnecessary to talk about. They're like, you know, mm-hmm. the fundamental points that don't need to be discussed. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's kind of my take <laughs> on it. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I love it. Uh, I wish, you know, I guess, you know, I need to watch the host and I guess Okja also kind of qualifies as a semi sci-fi film. I would say um, so. Yeah. But I really like this. I like how it's very, um, illustrative, uh, how to use these big sci-fi concepts in terms of pushing your store story forward, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of sci-fi films you watch that are sort of un- unnecessarily, uh, generic or almost, you know, like how many spaceships can I watch and so on. <laughs> but yeah. in this one, you know, every single element of the unique sci-fi world is speaking to the actual story in a concrete right, way, right. which is easy to, and- it's easy to pick up on and it's easy to pick up on subconsciously. And it's just done. It's done so well. Um, yeah. And, and we're not saying that like egregious sci-fi doesn't exist, right? Like it does. Yeah. And it, it's just, um, like you have, um, there, there's kind of a spectrum to everything, right? Um, from, you know, what I would call good to bad. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, like just because we're saying that it can exist this way, doesn't mean we're not saying that it can exist in a, in a way that has no meaning. You know, people are just, um, like I, I would say like, <laughs> just, you know, throwing CG on the screen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I call it, uh, wouldn't it be cool filmmaking? You know, where like yeah, yeah, yeah. everything stems from the thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you know? And yeah, in in my opinion, that's where a lot of uh, where a lot of writers start going downhill, right? Oh yeah, big time. Um, well, but, that's what you know. What else can they do? You know, if you don't have something in you already that you can write, you know. It's right. got, it's got to be rough, you know, because I've said it there and I've looked at the blank page mm-hmm. and I know the way I get past it is by having something that I genuinely want to say and something I genuinely want to write about. But if you have to simply manifest something otherwise, yeah. you know, yeah, it, you'll find a lot of people do that. You know, wouldn't it be cool if wouldn't it be fun if. Yeah. Um, um, you know, you know I a lot of people, about... that's a lot of ways. That's a lot of you know, a lot of writers get it out of writer's block that way. And for me, um, writer's block, I think is sort of misunderstood. I think writer's block is an issue with identity rather than productivity. 100%. Yeah. Where no, like someone I- wants to be a great writer, great storyteller. And as they're typing stuff onto the page, their blank page, it feels completely false to them. It feels completely not good to them. And yeah. so they're stuck because they want to go from zero to a hundred and be a great writer. Cause what they really want is to be referred to as, and known as a great storyteller rather than actually having a story within them that they really want to tell. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so. That's, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, I mean like I, um, I think it was a few years ago. I, I kind of coined that like writer's block for me was a symbol that I had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. Right. Um, Hmm. So or a signal, I mean, Um, but like um, I kind of started a new process with writing when I was writing Reaper, where um, essentially what I did was I started um, with 
um, you know, inspiration just like anybody and started writing a story. Right. Yeah. And I got to the point where, and like I had gotten to this point a lot uh, before then where I kind of hit writer's block. You know, I I had only had a a few stories where I just went front to back without stopping, you know, Mm. and I realized that this point that I hit was this moment when I realized I had no idea what my story was about. Mm. Right. Um, And so what I did, um, this is the first time I did it, was I, I took the script that which wasn't called Reaper at the time and had nothing to do with the story that Reaper is now. Um, and, and I kind of just combed through it, seeing what my subconscious wanted from me, <laughs> you know, right. like what I was really getting attached to and like uh, found out what I was trying to say, rewrote the whole script, you know, threw the old one in the trash basically. And mm-hmm. uh, started from the bottom up with, with, you know, what I would call an insight um, and rebuilt the entire story. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I think that really lends to kind of what you're talking about where, you know, before I was like, oh, I want to write a script, you know, not I have a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, even even what you were doing, like <clears throat> you you are you had a story to tell, but even your starting point was better than what most people's starting point is when they complain about writer's block because mm-hmm. they're you're you're like, oh, I just want to tell a story. And then you find your story that you want to tell and that you want to give, you know, sacrifice some of your time and your work and life towards, right? Mm. But what a lot of people also, it's even worse for a lot of people when they have writer's block because what they want from the outset is simply uh, the sort of the the rewards of being perceived as great uh, already. And yeah. whenever they put words on the page, it doesn't match up. They know it doesn't match up, so they sort of engage in this cognitive dissonance where they can't recognize that explicitly, and they call it writer's block, and they don't they don't write, you know, or they start doing yeah. this whole. You know, there's actually an amazing monologue about that in um, Ultimate Spider-Man, the comic books. Okay. Um, Peter's dad, uh, he's kind of in this flashback, and he gives him this whole monologue about people that want to be, who want to like, people that want to appear special, you know. Yeah. And like kind of their uh, disdain for people that actually are mm-hmm. right. And like, it, it's such a great monologue, but it, it really rang true. when I kind of like looked around the world and saw people that were kind of ex- uh, uh, obsessed with the vanity of being special. Well, exactly. You know? And just think, yeah. I know we're getting a little off track here, but even just think about, um, you know, the way people pick their careers, even, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a, a lot of people don't want to actually be a fucking lawyer. Right. But they want the identity of being a lawyer, you know, right, right. and so on and so on and so on. Um, yeah, so and I, th- I think how thing. this loops back, though, is that I think Bong Joon-ho is one of these directors that, like, really, really knows the story that he wants to tell. Oh, yeah. You know? And the you can tell that. F- yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And when yeah. you like when you have a director like this, that's so, um, you know, to use our previous wording special, you know, and um he starts making films like it, it really can cause this movement um in a society especially one where you know i, I would say that the, there is this kind of like suffocation of the creative spirit um because when you looked in at korean uh cinema in general before i think you kind of see this like underground movement of really good film but you know it doesn't really cross like uh uh cross the line coming over here and you know really becoming mm-hmm. popular over here um more so it's for you know 
people that feel stifled in Korea. And I think yep. like imagine imagine being in a society where like Marvel movies aren't the most popular thing, but um mm-hmm. like soap opera like Days of Our Lives is the most popular thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. and like I, I think I think Bong Joon Ho might just be this like this like <laughs> you know force that's been repressed down and now is just like kind of exploded out into the world. You know, yeah. and um like he's giving us these amazing movies. Um and I, I mean his his career is fairly new, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, fairly new. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. Uh, relatively, you know. Um yeah. but compared to a lot of filmmakers. Right, right. Because he's been what he made two shorts in the nineties. Uh, and then was doing a lot of screenplay stuff. Um, yeah. When did he make Mother? Mother was 2009. Um, okay, so the host was before that. Yeah, I think I think okay. he's made about one, two, three, four, five, six, about okay, seven but the, this, films. The host, yeah. I think, was his first. Like, uh, oh wait, no, Memories of a Murder, Barking Dogs Never Barking Bark. Dog okay, Never so, maybe the host was his first like large budget film but oh yeah you know 2006 he's only really been around for um in in the big scene for making uh for about 15 years yeah you know which is relatively new you know yep um but uh shoot i forgot where i was going with this i mean villain made like a good three or four films before you know that's true before uh prisoners came out oh yeah um but I think that like someone like this, um, and this this even happens in the U.S., right? You have a filmmaker that really um, like puts a city on the map or something, right? Yeah. Um, like I would not be surprised um, if we if we see kind of this like, especially after Parasite and then the success of Parasite, if we see kind of this um, influx of just amazing Korean film. Right. I mean, uh, like when you look at what happened in Indonesia after the raid, right? Um, Like the raid was made there by a Welsh director. I I forget what his name was. It's like Gans or something, right? Yeah. But let's see. The raid. Yeah. Um, Gareth Evans. Yeah, but when when Gareth Evans, uh, who's a Welsh director, went to Indonesia to make the raid, and that totally just swept um, uh, swept Western audiences by storm, you know, um, it it even like inspired a whole new generation um, of uh, action, right, and a whole new style of action that was very just like a kind of like momentum driven in the cinematography and carefully planned out and brought kind of that like uh, mentality of showing off the character through the action um, yeah. of Eastern cinema into Western cinema. Um, mm-hmm. Like I really thought it was going to be Indonesian film um, that was going to break out into the Western audiences. But um, it, I think from what I can tell um, and from the few movies that I've seen after the raid there, like they, they kind of, they very much adopted the uh, action movie uh, market. Right. Where a lot of the movies that are coming out are these, um, I shouldn't say copies of the raid because they're not exactly copies of the raid, but they definitely stylistically draw a lot from it. Okay. Right. 
Um, so they're sort and, of like a B movie, frankly, because they're fulfilling certain genre conventions. Right, right, and and like the mm-hmm. Indonesian film scene. Like I, I don't know if there's um, like a whole lot there in terms of history. Um, but the film industry did kind of explode after that film, and now you can say without a doubt there's a there's a massive industry there uh, in comparison. Yeah, and that's like, always nice. Yeah. It really is. And I, I thought that might be kind of like the catalyst for them to break out into, you know, the Western world. But it was uh I, I think maybe the problem is that it was it was Gareth Evans that started it. You know, and he's not Indonesian. He he like, you know, can't obviously make a bunch of movies there. And yeah, you know, he he, he does have this uh he does have a background in Western film already, which might be the reason why the raid kind of uh crossed over but um a lot of the other films haven't right yeah um but you know there's also there's an element uh sorry no go ahead well there's an there's you know there's a there's another age to this blade frankly we've been Mm -hmm. talking a lot about asia and particularly and you know when japan had its heyday and where it is now and when china was doing good and where it is now and how indonesia almost did it and how it's looking like it's going to be korea who, mm-hmm. you know, sort of popularizes Eastern cinema in the West. But there's a double-edged, you know, it's a double-edged sword here. I think another reason why it's beginning, why it seems mainstream American audiences are becoming more willing to watch and enjoying Asian cinema, Eastern cinema, <clears throat> is also because the the generation of our own storytelling <laughs> and our right. own culture. Uh, well, and access, too. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's, that's, you know, when was the last time that something akin to Parasite was made, you know, in America? Um, I don't, I can't think about something that, you know, goes over like dual families, you know, class tension. You know, what about Ocha? You know, I can't yeah. really think of anything. Yeah, yeah. So there are, you know, they're also, not only are they, well, Bong Joon-ho appealing to a Western audience in his style. But they're but new to us, too. They're yeah. providing, yeah, they're providing yeah. new content. I'm, I'm actually yeah. really excited about him, though, because, um, like, when I was watching Okja, I, I almost saw this, like, almost, I don't know, in the way that he kind of framed up the scenes and moved through them, I kind of saw this, um, almost like this inspiration, or not, maybe not inspiration, but this amalgamation between, uh, like a Spielberg-esque and a Wes Anderson-esque thing, yeah. right? Where like I could see that. You know, I, I would say that there is there is some exaggeration, um, but it, it almost appears to be purely within the characters' minds, right? And mm-hmm. and not within the filmmaking, which is very like uh, it. It feels very like Wes Anderson to me. You know, yeah. Um, but then kind of the way that he um moves the camera reminds me of Spielberg. And Oksha was really the first time that I noticed it because I think Snowpiercer has a lot of uh uh handheld and kind of this like more gorilla um style, which I think fits Snowpiercer. Um but I think I, I don't know what the budget difference between Snowpiercer and Oksha was, but I think Oksha really was a time for him to like spread his wings. And then like you see that style get like very, very refined in Parasite. And I'm excited because, like, I think we're seeing this, like, 
uh, essentially the birth of a new master, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, that obviously I feel, I feel like that would excite any cinephile, you know, like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe he is the one that can really do it. Cause like, I'd say like besides Miyazaki, who I would say successfully brought animated film, um, and yeah, animation. Miyazaki is the reason that you know a generation of people watch anime regularly. One hundred percent. You know, before him, it was Kurosawa, and then we've always had very popular Eastern Asian actors as well in the West. But mm-hmm. now I think we have a, a you know a new director. And yeah, we'll and, see. and like Maybe I would say, can... like for example, like Jackie Chan kind of broke that barrier as well, but not as a director, as an actor. You know, you kind of have limited ability. Like, I mean, I I haven't really talked to too many people who have watched the films that Jackie Chan has directed, you know. Right. Um, But I think having someone who's just so uh, just so good, you know, making film um, somewhere else, I think it has this dual uh, effect of, you know, really bringing the viewers over to that country, but also um, really creating a movement within that country too. And, you know, to essentially like copy the style, right. And not, not a bad copy, not like steel, but like really like kind of like learn from it and yeah, be inspired. Grow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which I think is cool. And I think I, I would be really excited. I mean, we talked about potentially doing um, that new Netflix show, uh, squid game. Yeah. Right. We might. Net- yeah. Yeah. Um, which we might actually end up doing. Um, and it would be cool to kind of talk about like maybe kind of the effect because that, I think that is technically considered, you know, a Korean drama, you know, Mm -hmm. but like one thing that I noticed right off the bat is it wasn't shot in 60 frames per second, you know, which like every other Korean drama I've seen is, you know, like it looks like a soap opera. It looks, it's shot in 60 frames per second. You have this really like standard bright lighting, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have this, and maybe it's just because Netflix made it, but um, and like their their producers and crews were involved. I don't I don't know, you know. But it could also be the influence of, you know, a master like Bong Joon Ho can have on um, the cinema from his region. Well, and I'm sure the reason Netflix even financed that was because of the success they've had with Bong Joon Ho's. Uh, cinema, you know, that and I think they've on been, Netflix. That and I think they've been really Netflix like original. Um, I, I think they've been like really adamant about um, expanding into other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I started to see a lot more um, kind of like foreign. No, films they they have a lot of foreign films on there, but also yeah. how you know here's the thing, they don't push all of those foreign films to American audiences. They're selective that's, that's about fair. what kind they push to. Yeah, American like, like Squid Game was featured like front and yeah. center. Um, yeah, because yeah. if you dig, there's an incredible amount of original foreign content on there that you've just like never heard about. But occasionally they're going to push it up in front of you. You know, there's that German show recently, Dark. Mm. Uh, there was that Spanish one about the bank robbers. You know, those were pushed on American audiences because they were watching them. Right, um, right. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we may continue this then this conversation about 
Korea and uh, Eastern filmmaking. Uh, if we do, what is it named again? Squid Game? Uh, Squid Game, yeah. Yeah, so we may very well do that next episode. So, um, But maybe let's uh, dial it in on Snowpiercer now and talk sure. about the film itself. Um, honestly, I'm glad we, uh, we've already done 50 minutes <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> had a fun time listening because, well, this is a great film. It's kind of, you know, it's a little cut and dry in, in a certain it is. sense. You know, yeah, like yeah. we were just going to go over a few things here pretty much. And we'll have uh, <laughs> explained yeah. the film, so to speak. Uh, but it's amazing. It really is interesting. Um, you know, this is a, a film that I didn't have to, you know, rewatch to get. But I have rewatched it three or four times anyways. <laughs> yeah, you know, because, yeah. you, you know, there's those films where you want to understand them right take blade runner mm -hmm. for example and so you watch it a bajillion times but i got this the first time but i still have watched it like probably this is my fourth time now so i mean it's it's, it's so enjoyable it is it is and it's very uh it feels like very elegant in the way that it's all laid out in front of you and um yeah. also like just something about bong jin ho in general like i feel like his films are also very just crammed full of stuff you know, yeah. like there's so many details saturated and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think even when, when the insight's a little more simple, like, you know, there's, there's so much other stuff to be paying attention to. Yeah. There's so um, much like, uh, what you'd almost call what you call the pyramid. And sometimes I just refer to it as like themes or messages, but right, like, right. he's got so much extra shit that he's saying underneath the, you know, the big top message, the insight. Right. Um, right. But that's also one of the reasons why even with a simple theme, complex theme, other than Parasite so far, uh, mm. it's been pretty easy to see what he's saying is because because it's so saturated, you can miss probably 50 percent of the things and still get what he's saying, what he's getting, at, you know. Right. Um, right. Anyways, yeah. let's. No, uh, do you want to do you want to just yeah. cover the insight first? Just because. Yeah, I that's what I do to work backwards from here. <laughs> All right. So let's um, just say. The insight is essentially what we said earlier. You know, we're in an allegorical situation. The train represents society, civilization, and we're having a revolution. It's based on class. Um, the people in the back are in poverty and they're treated tyrannically. And the people in the front live, mm -hmm. you know, this sort of decadent, Luxurious, yeah, uh, libertine lifestyle. Yeah. And they're having a revolution. So now you might think, okay, cool. So what the film's going to be about is just sort of like the success of, you know, the revolution and how, you know, the defeat right. of tyranny, but no, but, actually yeah. <laughs> that's not what it's about at all. Uh, it's actually in many ways about how, uh, about civilization or society, whatever word you want to really use and about right. how the revolutions, the political revolutions in them, even if they are based and there's some virtue and justice behind it, they're built into the very system, uh, of the society of the civilization to begin with um right they're they're well, like and also yeah. like um about when when it when it becomes time to really tear it down right yeah um to you know essentially yeah when he rejects civilization crash. right yeah. right um and i i believe it was um it was the, it was the moment where he saw the kid as like a as a component of the train right exactly um, yeah and I guess from from that we can kind of just garner that the insight has to do with um, 
you know, like if the question is when do we when do we derail civilization, so to speak, you know, when children become part of the machine. Yeah. Right. And um, this is important, right? Because uh our main guy here, what's his name again in the fucking movie? Uh, uh it's, it's Chris I, Evans. I remember his uh his initials are the same. It's still C E. Um but it's, oh, it's Curtis. It's, like, it's Curtis. Yeah, Curtis something. Um, Everett. The Grand Curtis, Curtis Revolution. Yeah, well, yeah. Curtis. Um, well, it's interesting, right? Because Curtis has right before the he meets the the villain, so to speak, and there's these great monologues by Ed Harris, which I love. Yeah. Um, he has this confession uh, mm-hmm. with this sort of hacker, this uh, addict hacker that's been leading him through the train, yeah. uh, and you know, hacking through the doors about how when the the train initially started up. And they were going along the way, you know, it, there was chaos. There was like really bad chaos in the back and people were cannibalizing each other. Mm-hmm. And not only that, they were cannibalizing babies and they, and they did that women. because yeah. they tasted the best. You know, he, Chris Evans has some great acting this moment. And he tells a story about how he was attempting to eat this baby, to steal this baby uh, from someone or eating this child's mom or whatever it may be or well, I think killing he killed the this mom child's and then mom he was going to eat the yeah, baby to eat and then the, the baby. old man exactly. cut off his arm exactly um, the old yeah. man cuts his arm off and says eat this and you're so hungry yeah yeah and the old man's uh played by uh who, who the fuck is it it's uh it's john hurt mm-hmm. um, and he's sort of like this mentor quasi leader quasi not leader of the back mm-hmm. of the train for curtis um right so he has this burnt into him uh one that he has partook in that chaos um and knows what chaos does to people and but and up until this point and probably until a little forward he's projected that it's you know the people at the front of the train it's their fault you know it's it's ed harris's fault even right. though i did the wrong thing i killed a baby but like they put us in those conditions right um right and so he also has this um insecurity about how he never cut any of his limbs off for the hungry to eat and right how which this is amazing in juxtaposition leader. to what happens at the end exactly right. um, um so when you do get that reveal because you know he goes into the room at the very end with ed harris and he goes in this back and forth and there's there's argumentation and there's reveals uh right but at the very end after all this testimonials um you know the daughter of the of the hacker comes mm-hmm. in to get uh the one singular match that's left (laughs) in all of civilization so they can light (laughs) this bomb off, which we'll get to and talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, She knows somehow she knows it's interesting that she knows that there's children under the floorboards. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so she shows him because he's on the verge of being convinced. I think also it's, she, she has this kind of like a, this, uh, what is it? Um, Oh yeah. She's a little Uh, sixth sense. She's psychic. Yeah, Yeah. 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 She can um, see through walls. Right. <laughs> right. Which is interesting. So she knows what's there. Um, right. So, yeah, you're right. He sees this. This is mirrored from the very beginning uh, to the very end. There's this emphasis on children. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a child at the very beginning, the two children, in fact, that get stolen from their parents, mm-hmm. uh, which are revealed at the very end. Right. Right. And then you have the classroom. 
you had the confession about uh, eating children, and mm. then you had the reveal at the very end. Um, and so you're right. This the entire uh, thrust of what it's saying at the very end is when you're fucking around with children, when you're doing evil things to children, that's when it's irredeemable and you, you know, blow up the fucking train, which stands in for civilization and society. Right. And I guess, Um, I guess the end would go that the end also um, shows that like, even when you blow up the train, life still finds a way. Right. Yeah. Um, So that's an interesting thing, right? Because yeah, Part of the whole dialogue of the movie, one of the most interesting things about it is it's not just about the realities of being on a train. Uh, it's um, it's the illusions. It's the mutual illusions. They all mm. hold. Think about when they're fighting in that tunnel room with all the windows and yeah. they decide to stop fighting because the train <laughs> is going over some bad turns. And also because isn't there like a New Year's celebration and they there all is, take a yeah. moment? Yeah, they always, they, every time they which pass mean, that bridge. Yeah, exactly. And think about this. This is how they still, this is why the revolution is um, ultimately uh, portrayed to be not as actually radical as it might pretend to be, because it still buys into the assumption of civilization. Oh, we're having right. a rev- revolution to make civilization more just. Um, right. You know, not actually fighting against the thing. We just want to change our place within the train, so to speak. Right, Even right. if we may pretend that uh, we, there could be more equality and maybe there could or just, you know, more justice. Right. Uh, you know, this these are the realities of the train and we're going to respect them. We're going to each share these illusions. So both the, you know, the, uh, you know, the guards of the train, the enforcers of the order of Ed Harris, you know, hmm. and the, the revolutionaries buy into these same illusions. Right, um, right. And sometimes there's different ones, you know, like early on, they realize there's no bullets in most of the guns. Right. right. And that the guards are just using the guns as a fear tactic. Right. Hmm. But it's like two layers, you know, like you, it's an, <laughs> you know, you keep going like uh, how, you know, our main character, Chris Evans, he's getting messages. And so is our, our old guy who is sort mm-hmm. of co-leaders with him, uh, John Hurt, uh, right. getting snuck to them in their food bars. Right. And uh, so they, you know, they have to figure all these things out. But those themselves were yet another illusion. They come directly from the head of the train, Ed Harris, you know, mm-hmm. who's in charge of everything. He's at the top of the pyramid. Um. And then not only that, you even think about, I like how um, Bong Joon-ho has this other thing in there with, what's his name? Uh, the guy who unlocks all the doors, like the actor. He's so good. Um, yeah, uh, he was in Parasite as well. Um, yeah, he's so good. Is it uh, Song Kang-ho? I think it's, yeah, yeah Song. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll call him Song. Um, yeah, apparently he's been in a shit ton of his movies. Okay. Well, I like how he uses drugs. It's kind of a, a hippie-ish thing. I don't know how much I agree with it, but I like uh, I like how he did this, how it's the people who are purposely uh, fucking with their sense of reality that are mm-hmm. the ones that are most willing to question the illusions. Because even think at the right. very end there, when uh, he's having the conversation with Chris Evans right after Chris Evans has done his confession about eating people right. and uh, eating babies. And uh, 
he starts talking about, you know, like I have waited and I've watched. And when we hit, when the fight, when the fight froze and everyone was waiting, I was looking out the window and I saw that the snow had come down significantly, which means it's warming up. And then I also, you know, was taught about all the different kinds of snow. And I was, when the windows broke due to, you know, gunfire or whatever, some snow came in and I examined it. And, and then he also says, and I saw, and I saw, and he doesn't get it out, but it's kind of revealed later on that what he saw was a polar bear. He saw life. Um, And so he's like him and his daughter are the only ones that are sort of willing to uh, question these, these illusions. Yeah. Well, uh, that right. don't buy into these illusions. And I like how drugs is that tool, but drugs is also the tool they use <laughs> to blow, to blow up civilization, <laughs> so to speak, because yeah. it's a chemical yeah. in the drug and uh, end it um, so that they can break out of this illusion. And then what you find is, of course, at the very end is his daughter and one of the babies that Chris ends up saving uh, are you know, stumble out there and you get the idea that they could survive. They could make it work and they actually didn't need to be on this train. Right. Um, and I, I think one of the, one of the um, cool things about that too, is just this, this idea that, you know, this illusion is what um, essentially drives all of the conflict too, you know, yeah. um, because they, they all believe that like, you know, and, and you can see that they're they're indoctrinated from a really young age. They even have like hand motions that go along with like saying that if they leave the train, they'll die. Yeah. You know, and like like every year they they watch those seven frozen people. You know, yeah, <laughs> as they pass by, they try to like escape. it's just drilled into their head that like it's society or nothing. You know, well, and it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is so interesting because there's so many parallels. This film is prescient. Okay, mm-hmm. it's prescient. It came out in 2013. It's insane. Okay, number one, the <laughs> film opens up with this idea that, and whatever your beliefs on this, I don't care. But it's so interesting how prescient this was. Mm-hmm. Um, that climate, in order to save us from climate change, uh, you know, a bunch of people, you know, the nations, the billionaires, whatever, decided to blast the atmosphere with chemicals, which ended up, you know, freezing Earth over. You know, like mm-hmm. extreme ice age. Well. I won't say who <laughs> you can all look it up for yourself, but there, there was a, a pr- quite a prominent billionaire recently that was trying to actually blast our atmosphere with chemicals to block the sun because of climate change. So interesting. Uh, that's yeah. interesting. Second thing is the protein bars, these gelatinous protein bars that mm-hmm. people get to eat. They discover later on. Here's an interesting thing. Chris Evans discovers the ingredients later on very early into the beginning of their revolution. He doesn't tell the people. That's very interesting that he doesn't tell well, them. I think it's because he hides he knows, it from them. Knows what happens if um, they stop eating them. You know. Well, yeah. Well, exactly. That's kind of interesting to keep in mind, which we'll get to later. But mm-hmm. understand this: they're feeding the lower class uh, bug, you know, gelatinized bug mash. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't noticed, to a small degree. Uh, there has been a lot of like media articles and companies right now that are that have like hundreds of millions of dollars in investment uh, that are trying to figure out how to make bugs uh, a main <laughs> a main source of food for yeah. the population. So very, it's very prescient. <laughs> I just want to <laughs> say this film is kind of very weirdly prescient um, about 
different things uh, that, you know, you, that you would do that, you know, it's like, it's almost, it's sci-fi, but it's not sci-fi enough. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's too realistic now. (laughs) Like, um, so I just find that, I find that very interesting. So when you talk about also the education, right, that's what I jumped in on. You're Mm -hmm. talking about them getting educated. Well, you know, that also brings us to some, well, if this is sort of a parable to a degree about society and civilization that we live in and how political revolutions are and, you know, are an aspect of civilization itself. They're not actually, they're built into the very system. There's nothing necessarily intrinsically just about them. That's what the film's saying. I'm not necessarily saying that myself, you know. And the best thing you can do is if if it is that unjust is simply to exit, you know, civilization, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, Well, what it is saying then in its picture of civilization is that schools are literally just complete indoctrination centers. Um, And I think think before we get into any more, it's it's like I think this film isn't just about our society. I think it's just about, you know, society in general. Yeah, Uh, I agree. This seems to be true. You know? Yeah. in, In general... Edu- like you know, centers history. of education yeah. seem to perpetuate <laughs> the values of whatever current civilization they're in, right? Another right. thing which is related to this is the sort of theological language they use in the film to justify the power. You know, the, it was it was like the divine mor- engine or something like that, you know? The, right, right. The like mortal it's, it's engine. Like a god, right. Yeah. And yeah. they, and you know, they sort of almost like, thank you, Mr. Whatever his name is, Wilfred, yeah. uh, you know, Ed Harris for, you know, there's almost prayers and, you know, and the engine will take care of us all. There's these mantras. Um, and that's also interesting to me because that's also acutely understood and present in the sense that civilization and society has to justify, justify itself, uh, theologically, essentially, not necessarily with any particular religion, but they have to do it morally. And the only way to really do it morally, absolutely, is to have a kind of quasi, at the very least, religious tradition. Right. Um, and so that is also represented. So, you know, we were just talking earlier about how saturated the film is, right? Mm-hmm. There's just so much into in it. And it's so this sci-fi concept of having a train represent civilization is done so well. Right. Um it's and, done and, so and, incredibly and it well. simplifies everything too you know like it, yeah. it lets us see exactly it um it makes the conversation with the director much easier right mm-hmm. um i don't know I, I i think that's why we i would say that like if this wasn't um if the sci-fi element wasn't used well i don't think we would have gotten it as easily and i think the only reason that we think that it's sim- as simple as, as it is is because it was just presented so well yeah you know um that's true yeah no i think uh it's absolutely true you know um but yeah when, when i say that his films are cluttered i don't mean it in a bad way either you know it's just no uh, yeah uh, exaggerate is the uh, word I used. yeah what was like, the exchange yeah it, i just i just mean it's like jam-packed with like so much detail that you know there's so much to see on a rewatch and like i this is definitely a film that like i what i liked the more i watched it I think this yeah. is my third watch. Yeah, uh, I think this is my third. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I I have more to say about it. Do you, do you yeah, mind? No, go Can ahead. I, go ahead. I, so I also think he's sort of buying into 
not completely, but he is he's admitting that there's that there's a cyclical nature to society and civilization mm-hmm. from the off point, right? And this is repeated many times. Not only is the train on one singular track and repeating itself yearly, right? But when you get to Ed Harris's monologues, you know, there's like regular coolings and they allow these revolutions. They actually sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, create the circumstances in which the revolutions will arise. And they actually have, you know, John Hurt is Ed Harris's guy that's revealed later on as well. Uh, right. So there's a cyclical idea in it as well about how, um, about society and revolutions and how it's like, yeah, eventually you are going to have a revolution and eventually they'll win, but what's going to happen. And that's what I think the film is also kind of saying here is mm-hmm. if you don't exit, what, what, what it would be like if, if um, Chris Evans took over, yeah, it's it would like, be a cycle. Yeah. It would essentially be a cycle. He would literally just be the same guy and maybe he'd be a little well, bit more just that was eventually in the imagery as well. Like, especially when you saw him, like, I really love that shot when she runs up to um, when the girl, um, the daughter of the uh, security guy, security expert, yeah. uh, runs up to Chris Evans to get the match. Um, he like pushes her away, and there's kind of this yeah. like uh, uh, upwards angled shot um, of him as she backs away from him, seeing what he is about to become. Right, and he's yeah. standing there with with Wilford behind him, right, and you yeah. see this engine just spinning around him, and I, I just love that shot because it was uh it was such a good um yeah it's so great yeah it's just such a good image to kind of uh represent what the film's about yeah you know and, and directly preceding that image before she runs to him they're yeah. overviewing uh the security expert fighting those people on the bridge so they can't make it over mm. and you know and ed harris uh is doing his whole monologue whispering into you know Chris Evans ear, so to speak, Curtis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's like, look at them, you know, look at the chaos. You know, this is why we need order. You know how it is. You live through chaos. You were just like them, you know, in terms of eating the babies, in terms of seeing the violence that they do to each other. And he's like, oh, you know, this is convincing. Who would not be convinced by this, essentially? But it takes this gifted young girl who can see through fucking walls to go, oh, wait a second. You know, this guy is bullshitting you look at this look he's also doing horrendous things so don't you know confuse yourself you're gonna have to do horrible things to people if you want to be in charge if you actually want civilization to go on as it currently is Mm -hmm. you're gonna need to be willing to do this kind of shit and that's the the whole idea for him from the very beginning you know his impetus chris evans is that he wants to end that stuff Right, right um and so he's given that that moment where he's able to sacrifice his limb, so to speak, like right. his mentor who, you know, kind of betrayed him quite kind of not. It's an interesting thing. We could talk about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, gave him the example for, I, I would say decides, you know, a bit of a betrayal. I know? think it is. I do. Like, I mean, um, he, he was, he was grooming him for the role. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it, it was a betrayal and then it was, it was a, um, it was dishonest. Well, right. it's it's one thing. I like to think about it this way as well. It's like, how do you deal with a righteous ideologue almost? Right. Yeah, that's how I think about John Hurt's character because I'm like, he's right. He's essentially right with what he's saying to people. Right. But the thing is, he himself, you know, what does he say? He's like, uh, when you go to Ed Harris, don't let him speak. Cut out his tongue and kill him. 
You know what I mean? Right. He says that knowing that he is setting up Chris Evan to be the next guy. Right. Uh, and that he's, you know, essentially all second in command, so to speak, to Ed Harris, just mm-hmm. hiddenly. Um, that's that's very interesting to me um, because yeah. it's it's kind of like that. You know, the the uh, the pure ideologue wants civilization to go to continue on. Right. Yeah. Whereas Chris Evans is not necessarily the ideologue. He is. He's like he's seeking like moral redemption, frankly. Right. Yeah. This he doesn't is totally want a to live in a place where children are being killed. You know, that's right. sort of like the basic idea for him. And when the illusion is shattered, that uh, there is such a way to do that within the train, which is to say civilization, uh, then you know, fuck it. Let's see. Right. I'll give my life to save one kid. You know, as many as I can, so to speak, and we'll end this. Right. Um, um, I, I do like this idea of Chris Evans, you know, like being portrayed as the hero of this story um, throughout most of it. And essentially in that monologue, he like he like. He's almost an irredeemable man. You know, and yeah. you even find out that this this kid that idealized him. Right. Um, like you know, he killed his mother and he was about to eat him. Yeah. Right. And, and not only that, not only that, when they're doing the whole fight scene and it's played by uh, Jamie, right? Jamie Bell, yeah, that's yeah. the actor, I believe. Uh, when they're doing their first huge initial fight scene, Jamie Bell dies and Chris Evans' character, Curtis, has the chance to try to save him. But what he does instead is he decides to do, you know, the whole... I did what I had to do, you know, sort of thing. I, right, I, right. You know, the the means justify the ends or no, the other way around. The yeah, ends yeah. justify the means kind of thing, which, yeah. you know, if anything, that would be retroactively looked at as like a kind of mistake by Chris Evans, wouldn't it? Because sure. it's that kind of impetus that even what you were just saying about how he's kind of evil. He's like barely redeemable, you know, right? Uh, with the shit he's done. Uh, and it's that kind of thing that um, that uh, uh, Ed Harris's character is pulling on the ends justify the means kind of thing right. uh, where, you know, but go ahead. Uh, no, sorry, yeah, no, I, I just I just like the idea of having a hero like this, because I mean, how how contrary does that run to? Well, dude, this is what I've been today. fucking talking about. You know, <laughs> this is what I've been fucking talking about for fucking forever. Yeah, yeah. is the fucking uh the moral courage aspect the yep. like the moral reality you put in your film this is one of those films where it's not you know it's ironically captain america that's <laughs> that's playing this role because captain america yep. is kind of the perfect example of what i <laughs> what of i what talk about talking what about, i don't yeah. like yeah which yeah. is like they're so moral and so good so as to like have no courage and no real morality whatsoever anyways because the toughest decisions they have to make is like do you save person one or person two right uh and that's that you know right um but you know to be a man that goes from literally killing mothers and eating their children to you know a man who gives his arm to save a child like it, it really shows the complexity of humans too Right. That like, you know, we're, we're not just these one dimensional beings that can be categorized into something like something that's good, or good or evil, you know, 
and like i think even after he talks about what he did at the end it's not this like um it's it's not this moment where i think you completely lose the audience right um like in a sense you still root for him right Mm -hmm. and which is interesting because i think i think the way society is is currently is this kind of like unforgiving you know essentially like purist um society right where Mm -hmm. essentially like you have to be um completely pure or else you know you are considered evil and to see someone who is considered uh who would by by any measure be considered irredeemably evil um save this kid you know literally at the cost of his arm and life you know yeah like i don't know it, it's a very interesting film and it's it's a, it's a lot more interesting than like you said these like kind of morally perfect characters who do morally perfect things yeah. you know yeah um exactly and who fight for the good guys you know what i mean yeah yeah it, it's <laughs> uh yeah if there's two big things to take away from this film in terms of the insight it's one you know if civilization society reaches such a point where you know you mu- it's necessary to commit evil against children, so to speak, then, mm-hmm. you know, throw it in the trash. Yeah. And two, uh, that political revolutions, so to speak, are built in to civilization to begin with. So be smart and don't necessarily get caught up in them. Because what happens when Lenin goes from, you know, the hero of the people to, you know, the head of the USSR? Right. Well, actually, things stayed the same arguably they got worse right what happened when hitler did it same thing what right. happened you know when mao did it same thing what happened when paul pot did it same thing right same thing so there's this i'm not saying no revolutions i would like to think there has been a cool revolution uh the you know the american revolution maybe that's just the american <laughs> in me right yeah, yeah. but uh even then even then i can be sort of i can be objective enough to go oh but they still were like slave owners so in a way the children were in the engine right the children were in the engine so (laughs) there's this idea and i'm not going to poo poo civilization okay sorry i kind of like it i just think (laughs) what bon jun ho it has done here is amazing it's very evocative how he's how he's painted all this how he's put it all together i'm not saying that I'm not going to like, like civilization in there, throw it in the trash. And you know, this, you know, but he essentially changed my mind on the topic. He has broadened it. His film was one of the first films that really clarified that. Like I had elements Mm -hmm. of that swirling around in my head before I watched it, but clarified, Oh, you know, the people that are really into politics are actually sort of perpetuating (laughs) the very system that they claim to be rebelling. against. Right. Right. Because, because it Um, all falls down to a false dichotomy at the end. Right. Because like they take part in it because they believe the illusion. Exactly. They buy into the illusions and societies in in a way, especially industrial societies, kind of like a machine, no -hmm. matter what you do, when you get into power, you're going to realize you need to do certain things Mm -hmm. and you're going to be actually a lot like the people that you overthrow. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think there's something to be said about 
you yourself exiting right uh civilization if you don't like it um <laughs> you know go build your cabin in the woods kind of thing if right, you want right. to go do that but uh i'm not necessarily going to say civilization is inherently evil it's just human beings like if i made this movie i would say that i had to redo it i would either. retool it right i would just kind of retool you yeah, know that's true that's true but uh i would um no well, well yeah, I, I, because right. like he almost he almost it almost takes him seeing the child in the machine, right? Like that, that's yeah. the breaking point. Like I feel like Chris Evans is, is, or Curtis is about to, is essentially about to buy into the idea. Oh um, yeah. He is a moment away. Right. Um, and I, like, I, I wouldn't say like, to me, it doesn't seem like Bon Joon-ho is an anarchist, right? It seems like he, um, he says there's, there's a line that we don't cross. Right. Yeah. But that's um, see that's what that's where I would be a little. I completely agree with you, but that's where I'd be a little like, oh come on, you can't have your cake and eat it too, man. You can't make Snowpiercer <laughs> and say that. <laughs> you can't almost like. Uh, Maybe the know, idea like, is that anarchy is better than. Um, Anarchy in the end. Maybe of maybe the is idea is than... like to truly start over because there's no right, really right. no civilization, right? That's true. That's true. There's no you know if there's you know. If there's a handful of people around a campfire, there's civilization. What's the line in Alien Covenant? Uh, Michael Fassbender, he's like some Nathandral, you know, puts a yeah. leaf of grass between his fingers and blows through it to entertain the children. In a blink of an eye, civilization, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that maybe that's the way we solve this. Um, is you just start over. You don't try to right. keep revolting within the exact same system. Right, right. Uh, well, yeah. maybe that's that that's the difference between like a lot of the revolutions you talked about and for example, the American Revolution, right? Is that the American Revolution truly was this like um, yeah. this this that's new true. country being born, right? George George Washington didn't make himself king. He could have and he didn't. Unlike mm -hmm. the the Lenins and the Stalins and the Maos and the Hitlers, you know. So. Right, right. Um and and they also propagated the same system that they overthrew. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. No, I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I I don't know yeah. if there's any more to be said. I think we've gone over all the aspects of it at least twice. I would say yeah. though, uh, what do you think of the fish scene? What what does the fish mean to you? Because <laughs> I can't understand the fish at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's one of those things where like, like he he crams so much into his films. Like I'm still baffled by the rock and parasite. Um, <laughs> you know, like I have my theories, but like nothing concrete and like, like the same thing with the fish, like, you know, it obviously had to do with the blood of the fish being on the ax. Right. Yeah. Um, like they cut into it and they, they covered their axes in blood. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe they were just, maybe it was about like, uh, like showing them what they are to them, you know, like, you know, just, it's just like gutting a fish, like they're nothing. Yeah, I you think know. it could be that. I think it could be that simple. I don't think it might have to have a huge amount of symbology in it, but it could, and that's yeah. what's annoying me. You know like I mean? the way that I saw it was, it was, it was really just, it, it was more of the because, you know, when when you went into the kids kids room, right, um, where they were all getting educated, right, um, they all had like yeah. these masks on that were just like made with like, <laughs> um with paper cutouts and stuff. And I think the implication there is that they grow up to be those masked men. Right. Mm. 
um and like you have um like the the way that they were talking like that one girl you know you could just like feel her um her classism and her hatred towards these people yeah right um and and the way that i saw it was them gutting the fish and you know drenching their axes in the fish blood um was essentially you know them just kind of saying that like the blood of this fish on this axe and your blood looks no different you know okay (laughs) Yeah, I could get that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe that's me reading into it, but like it's it's uh No, I think it has to it has to be at least that, right? It has right. to. So Yeah. Um well, Yeah. Um I don't know. <laughs> also there's another thing I'd like to point out is uh Akira, the great anime. Mm-hmm. Um in Akira, remember our protagonist gets befriended by revolutionaries. Um, right. And those revolutionaries are actually misguided because the revolution is fake. And it's actually just a guy vying for political power yep. uh, within the government already. You know, mm-hmm. once again, you know, so this is a this is a cool theme that you'll see in a, a few movies. Um, I like how it does it in Snowpiercer a little better. And obviously that's not the vocal point of Akira. Yeah. Um, but I just thought of that as well. You know, I rewatching it again. I was like, Oh yeah, there's that point in Akira. And like, finally the general is just like, what you, the council ordered my arrest. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Martial law. Now arrest right, everybody. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I like that scene where they, where they try to arrest him. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, I really like it. And because once again, we didn't even bring this up, but Bong Joon-ho, as we covered when we did Okja, he's kind of political. Mm-hmm. He's not political in the sense that he's partisan, but he's political yeah. and he talks about like societal, civilizational issues. Yeah, uh, he's cl- very class issues. he's very intelligent about the way that he um, yeah. looks in it. Like he 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 seems to have a deep understanding of a lot of the aspects of, you know, society and politics. And like I, I don't know if he really um really like goes to one side or the other and i don't i don't know if it's different in korea than it is here um like uh, not uh, this is this is one thing that i I always tell people is that like you know when when you look at filmmakers from other cultures like they don't they don't adhere strictly to our kind of like binary system you know yeah um and the, the political parties are different everywhere um so true and yeah, no, like I, I don't, I don't know where he falls in terms of Korean politics, but um, I think but wherever again, he does, he's very, very educated in his opinion. Once again, though, even even with that being the case, and I absolutely agree, weirdly present and weirdly applicable to the American uh, audience. Yeah, both Snowpiercer, Okja, and uh, Parasite. Yeah, so I, I mean, especially after watching Parasite, I, I started kind of realizing how uh how much of an understanding that he has um about people just people Mm -hmm. in general just like the the way that people's minds work and the way that they interact with each other and absorb society around them and like the the relationship between the two and like i think maybe that's where this kind of like prescient um idea comes from right where like you know he he seems to just have knowledge of the future but it really is like like you know maybe it it really seems to be just this 
complete understanding of humans and this like um and how they're going to react to certain things and i I think that you see this in a lot of um really really good uh science fiction and fantasy authors and writers and directors and you know Mm -hmm. like a lot of them seem to just have this um have this like incredible foresight and I, I think it really just derives from just understanding human behavior um, to a degree that a lot of other people don't, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, yeah. But no, he's brilliant. I can't wait to see his next film. Like I was blown away by Snowpiercer, Okja, Parasite. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen the host, so I'd have to rewatch it. Well, yeah, um, I got to watch his, the films before. Yeah, uh, I haven't I haven't seen Mother yet, but I really want to. I will point out one last thing about Snowpiercer though that we haven't talked about at all, mm-hmm. and that's Tilda Swinton. <laughs> <laughs> she's um, great. I she's amazing. <laughs> she's been in. She wasn't in Parasite though. Uh, she she was in Snowpiercer and Oakja. Yeah, she was in Oakja, right? Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, she she's always given me the um, sense that she's. Uh, i don't know she she just seems like a brilliant person right yeah and i I could see them getting along uh, really well doesn't she have a relationship with max richter as well i don't know maybe Um, let me look that up she you know she seems to be she's such like a, a character actor frankly uh she plays these incredibly unique characters that are so memorable um yeah. yeah, I just wanted to point her out because, you know, she's essentially, what, probably third in command um, mm-hmm. or something, like uh, visibly and probably fourth, you know, since we know John Hurt uh, is secretly in cahoots with Ed oh, Harris. Okay, so the Blue Notebooks is the second album by Max Richter. And, oh, yeah, uh, the she's the voice. The, yeah, she's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, th- cool. those are great. Yeah. Blue Notebooks are great to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyways, I don't know. We could go over it again. We could say it all again about how, you know, you know, revolutions are built into the system and hurting children is evil, which mm-hmm. is a very good message. You know, it needs to be said more, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go over all the little details and all the extra things that reinforce things. And we could go over Chris Evan, Evan's character again and his... Uh, morality and how he does bad things and has inclinations towards bad things but also he has you know he's in he wants justice and he's pursuing virtue and he's trying to fight for what he thinks is a noble cause and how interesting that all is and how you don't see that but i think we did it i think essentially yeah. we said it so definitely um so yeah watch snowpiercer if you haven't rewatch it it's on netflix for americans at the very least mm-hmm. um we already talked about that we're probably going to do squid game Mm-hmm. um for next episode we're also considering at some point in the future doing hot fuzz and yep. this month that we have entered into we have both a 007 and dune coming out oh, uh, so we, we might... probably want to do episodes on those as well yeah we so... might do the same format as our tenant episode where we uh yeah. do a reaction episode and then a revisitation episode yeah yeah we, we might very well need to uh yeah. Which means if uh, we might not be doing either um, Squid Game or Hot Fuzz, honestly, because uh, we'll just have to see. Because <laughs> when we make those episodes, we're just going to want to pump them out. So that's true. 
All righty. All right. Cool. Um, I'll find something here from Bong Joon-ho talking about Snowpiercer. Uh, but we'll see you guys next episode. See ya. But as you know, the film is based on a French graphic novel, and I'm a huge fan of comic books and graphic novels. I read a lot of them. And when I discovered it in a bookstore randomly, I was so fascinated by it because of its very unique concept. It's about humanity's last survivors on a running train with the rich class on the front cars and the poor in the tail section. And so that setup in itself was so fascinating to me, and that's why I uh, began, began the project. For me, it wasn't about doing a Hollywood film. The film is about uh, humanity's last survivors on a train, and it would be very strange to have only South and North Koreans on that train. So very naturally, we ended up gathering an international cast from the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and it happened, uh, you know, very inevitably. So. Actually, it's a Korean film with an English cast because the production company and the financiers were all Korean. How do you direct the people who only speak English? Do you, I know that you can speak some English and I don't know how much and I don't, maybe you do it with translators, but I'm just curious when you're directing people who don't speak the same language. That was there were quite many great translators <laughs> on set, yeah, always. So, always, yeah. yeah, totally depend on them. Um, so, in addition to working for the first time with with American actors on that film, you also worked with American distributors, mm. and one of them, the the parent company of the distributor, uh, it was run by the late. Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> and I want to ask you, you got some firsthand experience of why his nickname, probably among a lot of them, was Harvey Scissorhands. Uh, what did he try to do to Snowpiercer? So the film was uh, produced by a Korean studio, and. It was Korean financiers, um, but the Weinstein Company became the North American distributor that acquired the film. And once the decision was made, my producer gave me a book to read. Down and dirty pictures. So the book was called Down and Dirty Pictures, and around 80% of the book was about Harvey Weinstein and about how a lot of filmmakers struggled uh, because of his tendency to cut things out of the films. Um, and once I read the book, I realized that I really had to prepare myself. <laughs> But to tell you what happened in that year-long editing process, we would have to stay up all night. I just want to jump to the conclusion. Oh. <laughs> For me, I consider myself lucky, and it was a happy ending because I managed to release the film in my director's cut. Um, it was a long and complicated process, uh, and ultimately the film had a limited release, uh, but for me, it wasn't important whether it was limited or wide release. I was just happy to keep my director's cut as I've always done with all of my films. Just one, yeah. 
Just one quick follow-up. There was a scene in the film that I think he wanted to get rid of that involved a fish. <laughs> Can you explain what happened there? So there's a scene in the film where someone is slicing open a very large fish with an axe, and Harvey Weinstein was like, uh, what insisted that we can get rid of that shot and not uh, hurt the story. Um, but it was, a, it was a shot that I, the DP and I really liked. And I told him, oh, <laughs> this is very personal, family something, because uh, this is dedicated to my father. <laughs> so, <laughs> my father was a fisherman, and then it's a total lie, of course. <laughs> I did feel bad when I told him that lie. What did he say? And he was so cool at that moment, and wow, bong, the family is important. <laughs> you have the shot. And, um, you have the shot. The editor and the editor are not going to be able to do it. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you So he told all the editors not to touch that shot, and that it's very important. I mean, this is something that I talked about in a magazine interview, and that's what happened.